0: All right guys, I have two keywords I'm gonna throw your way. You ready? The first one, SEO. We all know that SEO is a hot topic and it's not going away anytime soon. The second keyword, DD Agency. That's our education marketing agency partner who's on the SEO scene as we speak. Their mission statement reads, we help Davids be Goliaths, so if tackling your SEO feels a bit like jousting with a giant, these folks are your people. They're planning an upcoming webinar for the undergrad enrollment space called how to take your school's seo game from zero to 60 and spoiler alert i'm going to be one of the hosts so if you are not tired of my enrollment marketing musings just yet go ahead and mark your calendar for thursday june 3rd at 2 p.m eastern standard time that's thursday june 3rd at 2 p.m est to leverage the combined power of these two keywords remember SEO and DD agency, head on over to SlayYourSEOGiants.com to RSVP or click the link in the show notes. Again, that's SlayYourSEOGiants.com. And again, you can get to that by just popping on down to the show notes and clicking that link. Hope to see you all there. And we are very, very excited about this webinar. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Enrollify podcast. Zach here, and today I am joined by Bill Faust from Algy. Welcome to the show, Bill.
1: Great to be here. Thanks, Zach. Appreciate it. Looking forward to it.
0: Me too. Me too. And this is not your first appearance on our podcast. um, And hopefully it won't be your last. Um, I'm pretty confident it won't be. You uh, pump out so much great uh, content under sort of Ology's umbrella, also just under your personal brand umbrella. And I know that I have learned a lot from you. I know that several of the people listening to today's conversation have either seen you or heard you speak at a conference or met folks from the ology team but for the few people that are listening that might not be aware of who you are and what ology is can you just sort of give us a quick crash course the elevator pitch for ology and then help us understand what your role there is
1: yeah absolutely uh, well i'll start with ology ology is a branding and marketing agency um And we're about 70, 75 people strong um, based uh, in Columbus, Ohio, but work across the country and we like to think of ourselves as branding and marketing for the greater good, um, but about seventy five percent of that for us is working in higher education hmm. uh, but uh but the rest of it is sort of what I call adjacent businesses or organizations like hospitals and museums and you know other mission driven purpose driven organizations um, and we say branding and marketing because we do both, and we we uh, recognize that they're both different muscles. Uh, I tend to lean a little bit more towards the branding side. It's my background uh, prior to Ology, and um, I'm one of the two partners there, uh, two owners uh, of the business, uh, with my partner Bev Ryan, and um, and I head up kind of the research and strategy side of the business as well. And 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 that's my focus is you know market research, brand strategy,
0: market market planning, things like that. And how long have you been at Ology?
1: You know, I'm coming up on uh, next year will be 20 years. Wow. Um, the firm's been around for a little over 30. Okay. Um, my, my partner Bev uh, started it um, literally when she graduated uh, from the Columbus College of Art and Design. She started her own business and has had it ever since. But she and I intersected about uh, almost, a little under 20 years ago. And uh, it's hard to believe it's gone by fast, but because uh, we have a lot of fun
0: yeah yeah no that's exciting i'm always interested in sort of like the origin stories of legacy uh uh, companies especially when you've got you know a couple of partners who have been there for for years um and yeah we'll have to get into sort of the meat and i'm sure that there's a, a zillion stories that you you all uh could share about sort of learnings along the way going from um just getting started to a branding and marketing firm of over you know seventy people that's that 's impressive um, and that doesn 't come with a lot of you know late nights i 'm sure some some missteps um, but also just uh, it 's exciting to kind of hear and and i 'd love to hear a little bit more about that story at at a later point um, but today we I want to talk about the post pandemic brand in higher education, and this is a, a topic of conversation that you 've been having with some folks. Um, at least for uh, a, a few weeks now i'm sure that this is sort of a the conversation that you've been involved in for for months and I believe recently you helped facilitate a roundtable discussion from uh, with, with some leaders in the the higher ed branding space. I know that Ethan Braden was on that panel uh, a couple other folks who are who are industry giants as well um, and I, i'm hoping you could just give us sort of like a quick, you know, refresh on, you know, a few of the challenges that higher ed marketers were facing before the pandemic. So be, we've all been sort of in this cloud uh, over the last 18 months or so, but just maybe paint us a picture before we talk about what's going to happen to brand and marketing in higher ed as we sort of emerge from from this experience. Remind us, if you if you can, where were we right before COVID? Because higher ed was facing some some serious challenges, even before we knew what the heck COVID-19 was?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. And uh, and when I pulled this um, framework together for this conversation with, you're right, uh, about 20 higher ed CMOs, chief marketing officers, um, and I kind of took myself back to you know February of last year, and just started to write down like some of the things that were on people's mind it it's a li- it was a little overwhelming honestly um and and you can get kind of bleak right away but you know despite that i'm still a, a huge optimist about higher education but i mean if you if you sort of start on the enrollment side right there's the 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 infamous demographic cliff um and when you see, when you've seen, you know, recent articles, very recent articles about, you know, the decline in birth rates has even accelerated um, it's that's just, there's just no light at the end of that tunnel. So if I was outside of higher ed and I, and I use the word customer, there are just going to be fewer customers for the, the product that higher ed has to offer. And I think, you know, it, it starts to get really severe in a couple of years, but then it's just going to continue on. You add to that, the cost, and the debt, the student debt um, situation, and then you add to that, you know, some of the policy changes that happened a couple of years ago with NACAC and on the admission side, um, you know, admissions was facing quite a few challenges. If I flip and go to the other, other uh, revenue stream for higher ed of philanthropy, yeah. or one of the other, not the other, um, You know, there, uh, you know, there's kind of has been, you know, campaign after campaign, um, large public schools are raising money more than they used to because they get less state support, Uh, small schools have always been raising money. Uh, the, the you know, the sort of the, the wealthier schools, if you will, with large endowments seem to be able to raise more, which is sort of ironic because it, it might be some of the other schools that need it more. Uh, so you add that to this idea of just donor fatigue, um, you know, the, the, the advancement side was facing some challenges. And then I'd say the third area is just general reputation of higher education yeah. um, in terms of, you know, do we trust big institutions? Do we trust Uh, large colleges and universities? Are they too liberal? Are, you know, the the free speech debate? And then, of course, because we're dealing mostly, not exclusively, with youth, you know, they're kind of a a place where if there's a national issue of of race or gender or discrimination or any social justice kind of topic, it's going to find itself front and center on a college campus. So those are just the few headliners, but, you know, those were Those were a handful of things that we were all thinking about about a year and a half ago.
0: And so those things, right, none of those things that you just mentioned have have gone away. Um, So while we have lived through a pandemic and while maybe momentarily there was this pause and a stronger focus, perhaps on sort of, okay, how does higher ed move to a online only or online mostly sort of experience? Maybe some of these. these other headaches were tabled momentarily to sort of like tackle this immediate challenge of how do we help deliver the same sort of experience, a you know, tens of thousand dollars worth of experience in a sort of virtual only or virtual primarily format. Now is sort of we are we're coming out of of this pandemic and we're thinking about sort of the future of higher. ed. obviously, you know, COVID has not been gracious to many institutions. Several have had to close several have had to scale back dramatically um but what where, like how do you think about the moment that we're in right now so we're not back or not all, not every college is back operating at, at full uh capacity at this particular juncture more things are opening up right more people are, are are getting vaccinated there is sort of light at the end of the tunnel but as you see it in this particular moment as we head into summer before we kick off fall if you're coaching a CMO um, at a college or university, what are the What are some of the things that you think are top of mind for them? And how would you go about, I guess, sort of coaching them where to put their time, their focus, and their energy in this particular moment?
1: Um, where do I start? Well, I. <laughs> Let me let me address two things that you know. kind of unpack what you said there a little bit. I think the last 18 months have caused every every single institution to stand back and look at um, the experience of teaching and learning and everything that goes with it. And I would say before the pandemic, you know, you sort of had you, you've always had a spectrum from sort of, you know, dramatically in person, if you will, to dramatically online. Um, And then there were still hybrids in the middle um, and and schools, you know, that that had a little bit of both. But I think the pandemic sort of forced that it forced lots of steps across that spectrum because everybody had to really respond and and provide a range of options um, uh, for, you know, for how they experience the, the product, if you will, of higher education. Um, So that's, you know, that was that was good, because I think a lot of schools, you know, even though they were forced to adapt quickly, learned, refined, improved, some schools were better prepared than others. Um, But it's caused, um, you know, and I think it should continue to cause schools to now stand back and say, what is our experience? Hmm. Um, And 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 that plays into, you know, the whole enrollment cycle. So, for example, one of the most common things we've always heard from, from both marketers and, and enrollment officers, and more and more of those are becoming, if not one, you know, tighter partners, is if we can just get them on campus, we've got them, we've got them sold. They, yeah. they will come here, they will deposit. Well, is that true anymore? Uh, first of all, do they want to come to campus? Uh, Second, if they do come to campus, they're gonna look at it through a different lens. Is it safe? Um, Is it urban versus rural? Um, Has a whole different connotation now. You know, it used to be like, well, urban meant exciting and entertainment and lots to do. And now urban could mean less safe. Hmm. Um, I'm not saying it does, but I mean, there's a whole new set of filters. So it's gonna cause market. So I would say, you know, how you talk about your location has to change, and then i 'd back up a step and say, how you talk about the experience has to change um, and you have to sort of evaluate that now there 's no question that if that if you're interested in more than just you know the core education you 're interested in you know life experiences and and you know social experiences and and cultural experiences you know it 's hard to replicate you know uh, a Purdue football game online right um, and, uh, and Greek life or other things that, uh, that, you know, that undergraduates are certainly interested in maybe not so much adult learners, but undergraduates. So again, my advice would be for CMOs to sort of stand back and say, okay, kind of what are we selling? We know we're selling the core education. We know we have to have certain majors and they need to be ranked and they need to be competitive, but what else are we offering? And, are people valuing that the same way they did prior to the pandemic?
0: Hmm. Yeah, no, that's, uh, there's, there's a lot of interesting things to unpack there. One, one thing, one question, I guess that comes to mind in your talkings with people, like, do, I guess my, my thinking is what we're going to see is a reduction in how many colleges and universities, prospective students at the undergraduate level, uh, in particular, will uh will visit in any sort of um in any sort of uh, academic uh year. So meaning because more, you know mo- the, what this year taught us was that even more so than ever before the student search the college search starts online there's going to be like I would imagine more pressure to deliver really really great digital online experiences which primarily starts with an institution's website so that they uh, an individual is compelled to visit the actual institution to to come onto the campus grounds. And I would just imagine that because so much of our shopping behavior, so much of the way that we think about uh, making a purchasing decision, researching something before uh, making a purchasing decision happens in a digital first context. The same thing is going to apply to college universities. So while a student may have visited, on average, five to seven universities uh, as a part of their college tour, maybe that drops to two or three. Um, I'm curious, is, is that a topic of conversation people are talking about? Like, are are people worried about being able to get prospective college students to campus at the same rates at which they were able to historically, or is that not, is that not a popular topic of conversation at this moment?
1: Um, I've heard a little bit of both. Um, and I think, you know, I I think, I don't know, it's going to vary by institution, right? Um, I've I know that some institutions have they you know they they had some good virtual experiences already and then they doubled down and made them even better. Some didn't and invested in in great virtual experiences and and some didn't. Um and I think it's going to depend on you know kind of your overall value proposition. In general I agree with you. I think that um more remote searching but not just with the website, more re- more, more remote investigation Um, Will happen before you commit to a visit. Uh, And so I, I think those, you know, trips across the country of visiting eight or 10 schools probably will be less common because you can gain more knowledge and insight virtually than you used to. I think that that trend will continue. But I still think there are a lot of schools who believe that their on-campus experience, the intangibles, right? Yeah. And I'm not yeah. talking about that. Not not the things that got a lot of headlines, but I think are, you know, kind of, I don't know, sort of passe now, like the infamous Lazy River, you know, of LSU and all those kind of things. But I, I think that um, that, you know, campuses have certain facilities, they have certain uh, amenities, and, and, you know, and then just sort of the feel, because I do think a sense of belonging, especially for an undergraduate uh, prospect, a sense of belonging in a culture is still a very important aspect of what you find in a, in a school. When we, you know, we talk to thousands of students every year, and something we hear from them all the time that's just as common as, as the whole, you know, visit thing that we hear from the CMOs is, you know, it just felt right. Yeah. Right. I I spent time at Clemson and it just felt right. And it's frustrating for marketers because you're like, what do I do with that? Right. Um, but I, I, I think everything is just going to get, you know, kind of micro tuned uh, as opposed to sort of the wider net that existed before.
0: One of the things that I've been thinking a little bit about is a lot of the times for smaller institutions in particular. Right. They they have been able to you know, once they get people on campus, they understand, oh, wow, this is, this is what it looks like. This is what it feels like. It's very family oriented, right? You see students sort of interacting with faculty and staff, and it, it feels like a place where you'd be known. Right, like, and a lot of in, a lot of smaller institutions, a lot of you know, smaller liberal arts schools in particular, have sort of like thrived and, and really positioned themselves in some way, shape, or form as sort of like a place to come where everyone will know your name, right? Um, and that has been sort of a a, uh, a positioning statement that many institutions in in way, you know different ways have sort of like stood behind. And I think, um, or I guess, one, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is. Does the, is there more pressure for these smaller institutions that typically have, uh, you know, website content or, or marketing content that is um, of a slightly different caliber, mostly driven by sort of the resources and time and attention they're able to deliver to sort of like the digital user experience? I wonder if, there beca- if, there, if more pressure, uh, if it becomes more important to double down on how do you replicate that experience physically in a digital context so that there is almost um, congruency between what folks experience on campus to what they experience online, if, if like there's going to be more of a concerted effort to try uh, to double down on sort of like the UX of a university's digital campus, if you will, um, so that more people are compelled to to come visit these schools. So. I'm interested to see sort of how we see colleges and universities evolve their, their digital offerings to match sort of the culture that um, they know and they love and that they know is a selling point once they get students to to walk through, you know, the university's halls.
1: Yeah, I agree with you, except I would I would add that I don't think it's just small schools. I think every school is going to have to decide what its value proposition is around experience and then replicate it uh, you know virtually so that it moves students one step closer to a visit right so you're right smaller schools value propositions might be more around an intimate sense of community where you're known but there are just as many students out there who want to go somewhere where they're anonymous. Yeah. Right? I mean, I went, I went to Ohio state because everybody knew me in my high school. I wanted to be anonymous. I wanted to get lost somewhere. Um, so, you know, so Ohio state's virtual experience should be big and bold and, and, you know, maybe even almost overwhelming to a point where I say like, okay, that's a lot, but I want it all. I just want to sort of immerse myself in it. So, you know, the point being is that you you can't just rely on collateral to do that. You can't rely on just an admissions officer at a, uh, you know, at an event or at a school to to rely on that. There are going to have to, there's going to have to be a bigger investment in digital ways to convey that, to get, you know, to get somebody one step closer um, so that they get the, the feel, uh, for a school before they even set foot on campus. I, I totally agree.
0: Yeah. In the, in that same vein, I'm curious to get your thoughts on how you think this repositioning, this, uh, maybe doubling down on sort of what are our UVPs coming out of sort of the, of the pandemic, um, how do you think that this is going to change the actual offering and experiences of colleges and universities? Obviously, it's going to vary very dramatically, but like, I guess a question again that I've been thinking about is will we see colleges get a little bit more specific with who they're targeting? Like, will we see universities? be a little bit more concrete in their messaging as, you know, we are the right fit place for this kind of person. And, and how does higher ed, which is a very sort of like inclusive community, um, how, how, I guess, how do folks differentiate? How do folks position themselves as different without, you know, while simultaneously trying to say that we are a place for everybody? I guess, how, how are folks wrestling with that tension right now?
1: Um, Well, that's something that existed before the pandemic and now is just going to be accelerated. So I, I agree with your observation that, you know, that kind of differentiation is going to continue to be more critical. And it's the biggest opportunity for colleges and universities, but it's also the biggest challenge because historically, you know, all almost all colleges and universities have been generalists by nature. Um, if I can borrow a retail analogy, you know they've they've sort of been the department store, or the, mm. you know, or the or the or the drugstore. I know a lot of people will will cringe at that, but um, you know, I spent a lot of time in retail before I got into higher ed, and it's a good analogy for me. Um, you know, but the way that Nordstrom differentiates based on service um, can be analogous to the way that a large university differentiates on. Um, a certain dimension, whether that's well, I mean, Purdue's a good example. You mentioned Ethan, so I can uh, talk about Purdue a little bit. They're a large land grant public university, but they are completely unafraid to say, you know, we are about uh, the persistent pursuit of innovation, collaborative innovation, um, and you know, our leading programs are engineering and agriculture and 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 all the things that go with that it doesn't mean that they don't have humanities. It doesn't mean that they don't have other things, but they're not afraid to say what they lead with. Mm. And I think schools are going to have to do that. Um, I think the biggest opportunity, and I'm not as much of an expert on this as people like Jeff Salingo or others who write about it, but I think the biggest opportunity is to look at the educational offer and reorganize it, prune it, um, make it more clear And be afraid, be unafraid to say no to things, you know, say like, we we don't offer that here at school X or school Y. And if you really want that, you should go somewhere else. Um, Align with a core customer. And I think it's it's rethinking how you talk about those. The language is important. Um, I really like what RIT is doing with their new economy majors. Um, So rather than just, you know, having a list of majors, um that start with accounting and you know go through zoology they've basically said you know they've they've studied the new economy and then they've said what what are the skill sets Mm. that are going to be needed so things like digital humanities and logistics and things like that and they've they've actually created kind of a part of their website or a microsite that just talks about new economy majors of study and i i think that's really smart because it's moving away from the traditional things that as we know majors were sort of an outgrowth of the you know, agricultural and industrial economy, they're now saying this is the new economy. How do we change our offer to be in line with that?
0: Do you you I know you've talked a little I've read a couple of things that you've uh, written and or shared on this topic. But does this sort of align with this idea that there will be sort of this. Um, reshaping or reframing of of the major, maybe even sort of the death, uh, you know, uh, death to sort of the traditional major? How, how do you predict, like, over the next few years, colleges and universities will change the way in which they think about packaging courses to result in a particular degree offering? Like, do you think that that's part of this whole shift, almost sort of like a a reworking of how we think about, uh, grouping, you know, uh, courses together, or I guess, how do you think from a, from an individual product standpoint, if, if we think about an indiv- individual product as sort of like one specific degree offering a bachelor's in business administration, for instance, right. How do you think mm-hmm. that will change or evolve in light of everything that we're talking about?
1: Well, I think it should evolve. And I think it should start with, you know, I'm going to use that word again, consumer, um or the individual and kind of work backwards as opposed to an institutional you know kind of mindset um, I, I'm not a big, I, I mean, I've seen headlines like the death of the major. I, I think it's a little dramatic. Although, you know, schools like Hampshire College um, have, have done away with majors and schools and and created a highly indiv- individualized study. And that's great because that if if you want that, you should go to Hampshire. Yeah. But if you don't want that, if you want something more structured, you should go to West Virginia or, you know, wherever. Um, but I do think there are too many choices right now. And I think that so many of them ha- have their roots in history um, that isn't as relevant uh, today as it was 30 or 40 years ago. So I think you're going to see things combined. Uh, I think you're going to see things, you know, rethought in terms of, um, you know, what what you get for, you know, what's the experience, what do you learn from this, and, and what does it get you? Uh, and then I think, um, you know, repackaged. Um, and, and I'm not afraid to use that term repackage because you are asking, you know, somebody who's 16, 17 and their family to sort of make a decision. Um, and you have to speak their language and you have to speak in terms that are relevant to Gen Z, um, as opposed to, you know, some of this language that, again, is 20, 30, 40 years old. So I absolutely see more of that. But I think it's going to be a spectrum like everything else. There's going to be the Hampshire colleges on one side, and then there's going to be the large universities that have a lot of choices. But I think those choices will be more contemporary. Um, You know, they'll be around digital humanities. They'll be around data science, um, you know, uh, things that, you know, make sense in 2021 and
0: beyond. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, the more progressive colleges and universities will really think strongly about their general education requirements, right? And like, what does that actually mean? What do we actually need students regardless of sort of major program that they pursue? What do we really want people, what do we want these next generations to actually know? Like how does sort of like financial literacy, for example, like fit into this, right? How do folks think about like really disrupting general education requirements and, uh, and just rethinking, maybe there are multiple pathways within that, but um, what is sort of the new baseline uh, education that we want the future generations of of the America to to know um, and and I think that that 's where a lot of schools have a lot of headway to make up, especially sort of as we see. More offerings, more alternative offerings to education, like the Lambda Schools and, and General Assemblies of the World, sort of pop up. And as I would argue, it's it's more socially acceptable. It's increasingly more socially acceptable to take an alternative sort of career path um, and and do something like a coding boot camp uh, instead of pursuing your bachelor's or or a Lambda School. So I'm I'm curious, from your perspective, how do how do offerings like that challenge and or not challenge how society thinks about the overarching brand of higher education?
1: Well, I think, I think there's some, um, you know, there's a lot of misperceptions um, that all of higher education is, you know, like stuck in the past, that it's slow to change, that it's, um, you know, uh, inefficient. Um, and of course, with every misperception, there's a kernel of truth that that grew that you know that idea um and I think some of those have led to people thinking of that you know why is higher ed I mean people come to conclusions like why is higher ed expensive because it's inefficient and so on and so forth I don't think that's those are necessarily true, but I think that higher ed marketers, chief marketing officers have to work harder to overcome those so it's it's almost like if you're in higher ed. You not only have to sort of promote your brand; you have to promote the brand of the value of a college education. Now there are mountains of data, as we know, that show, you know, upward mobility and and uh, you know your ability to earn and improve your life and so on and so forth um, that are that are that's out there. But it does tend to get a little bit lost, you know, in the noise of you know is a college degree worth it. Um, and, and there's always these polarity of headlines, you know, like, (laughs) like, you know, you you know, people will say you don't have to go to college. I think that's true for some people. Uh, I think there will be other alternatives, but I also think that, you know, a a traditional four year, you know, undergraduate experience is going to be right for a whole lot of people, but higher ed, the, the brand of higher ed does need to advanced to to be more nimble and to be seen as more progressive. Uh, and I don't mean that in a political sense, progressive in terms of just forward thinking yeah. and, and you know, out in front of the curve.
0: Do you we've been talking a lot about uh, the undergrad experience and and thinking we've been most of the examples that we've thrown out have been a little bit more focused on undergrad. How do you think this moment is going to affect graduate education? Like, do you see the same sort of challenges um at the undergraduate level that you see at at uh that exist at, at the, at the gra- or the graduate level that exists at the undergraduate level do you think that there are different branding and marketing challenges when it comes to graduate ed- education than exists sort of in a traditional four-year degree Wh- what are your thoughts on sort of i guess the state of graduate education marketing and branding and even sort of i guess the value offering in this in this particular moment
1: yeah, well, I would I would divide that into two camps. I would you can look at graduate degrees and graduate programs and graduate schools, you know, that might be a med school, a law school or a um you know, public affairs or or MBA or those kind of things. And then the other category is like adult learners that could be graduate or undergraduate, you know, shifters uh up, some of these jargon terms like upskill, reskill. Um I think on the graduate degrees, graduate degree marketing has always been very associated with, you know, program rankings and the reputations of faculty. You know, you you know that if you want to pursue, you know, biomedical engineering, Johns Hopkins is where you want to go because of the legacy of healthcare and medical affiliation, and then a great engineering program to boot. Um, I don't, I... I I don't see major changes in that except that I see those schools and those programs just continuing to double down on you know we're the most highly programmed for x, y, and Z. I think the bigger changes are going to come with adult learners um you know people who didn't finish a degree started and didn't finish for a variety of reasons uh, people who want to you know change careers people who want to you know if not change careers just shift or augment and so i think I think that market that's also for me, kind of a next revolution in terms of how do we address that market? Um, and it's, it's you know, like schools like Phoenix do a great job in Southern New Hampshire, you know, with their programs. But I think, I think other, you know, more traditional colleges and universities need to embrace that as well. If, again, it's in their value proposition, a small sort of elite, if, if I can say that liberal arts college, you know, might say we don't have an interest in that market and that's okay. Yeah, Uh, because they're basically acknowledging, you know, we're going to focus on traditional undergrad, you know, Oberlin. We're going to focus on traditional undergraduates who, you know, have an interest in the arts and, and music. And we have a conservatory here and maybe they're not going to pursue, you know, adult learners out of Cleveland. I don't know. I don't I don't work with Oberlin. I'm just saying if they if they said that's our focus and we're not going to focus on adult learners, I think that's fine. But I think other schools, especially schools in sort of suburban and urban areas. Um, I think we'll have to really stand back and understand that market as well as they understand the traditional undergraduate market.
0: Do you, from a product standpoint and really from sort of like a course delivery standpoint, do you see like hybrid being the new normal for, I mean, again, I know that, you know, hybrid offerings are not new in light of COVID. They've been around for a while, but like, do you do you think about course delivery? Uh, any thoughts on sort of, whether or not even at the undergraduate level we'll see more asynchronous courses than we saw, you know, pre-COVID. Do you think that, in the same way that there's the the shift in culturally happening in how people work and more flexibility around sort of like. The nine to five not really being the nine to five anymore. Do you sort? Do you see sort of these uh, societal trends making their way into the way in which colleges and universities think about delivering education and sort of like the formats that they'll deliver education uh, uh, educational courses in? And do you think that that will be a little bit more flexible, or do you think you know what in a few years from now everything's kind of gonna look like it did before COVID? Yeah.
1: I hope not. Um, I hope it doesn't look the way it did. I hope the evolution not only continues, but accelerates. Um, and I mean, it has to, right? And again, if I go outside of higher education and I look at what's happened to entertainment, you know, I yeah. I'm old enough to remember three networks and, and public television and that was it. Right. Um, but now today you watch what you want to watch, when you want to watch it, how you want to watch it, you stream it, you download it, whatever. And, and then I could go to, you know, again, retail, you know, if I want commodities fast and cheap, I'm going to get them from Amazon and they'll be here tomorrow. All these other categories of, I'll call it commerce, have taught all of us people, not going to say customer this time, um, that, you know, big, big organizations can be flexible. Um, And so if you stand back and look at a college or university and they say, we're not flexible, you're like, well, why? Like there's, you know, Everybody else is. Why aren't you? Um, and so I think that's going to that's going to continue. So I think there will be more hybrids and flexibility in the process. But, you know, some schools are going to struggle figuring that out because they have aging infrastructure. They didn't catch up with digital transformation fast enough and so on and so forth. And it's just a mindset shift. You know, it's just it's just a big mindset shift. Um for higher education, which doesn't historically do things quickly. Yeah. Um, so it's just going to be kind of, you know, whereas other categories, um, I mean, maybe banking is another one to compare it to. I mean, there's almost, you know, like try to find a bank branch today, but that took decades to happen. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and when the ATMs first came out, people were like, wait a minute, put a card in a wall and get money out of it. I'm not going to do that. Well, t- you know, today, how could we live without that? And And that is even, you know going away because of, you know, digital payments and all those kind of things. So higher is going to go, is in the process of going through that same thing. So I think flexibility hybrid offers, absolutely. Um, and then the question is, how do you market them? Yeah. And how do you differentiate them? Because it's a new way of thinking about it.
0: Yeah. And I, I just, you know, put to put you on the spot here, any sort of couple ideas of, of like frameworks that you would offer for somebody who is in a position where, hey, they've got, let's, stick with uh with business here they've got an online mba program just like every other you know university um and they're trying to figure out how do we go ahead and differentiate ourselves from a marketing and positioning standpoint like what are what's one or two couple of frameworks that they might be able to walk through as they as they think about right and wrestle with these really really important challenges um so that they don't just go and drop you know tens of thousands of dollars on a uh, PPC campaign, all bidding for online MBA program and, you know, be charged $50 as a, you know, cost per click for for that particular term. Like, how do folks think about where to begin with differentiation?
1: Well, I don't I've never been a fan of differentiating based on price um, or even convenience because it's so short lived. And online online versus offline, uh, if I can just stay with that for a second, it's a little dated of an idea, but it is, is mostly or has mostly been about convenience. So the way I would answer that question is, I think it's less about, is our MBA program online or offline? The question should be, what kind of MBA program are we offering? Um, maybe our MBA program is focuses on um, you know, non-profit uh, business management because we're the business school for the greater good. Or maybe our MBA program focuses on, you know, digital business and the digital economy. Or maybe our MBA program, it like, and I think Johns Hopkins did this in their B-School, uh, you know, focuses on, you know, kind of an MBA focused on like healthcare and health management. To me, that's the differentiation. Like, you know, expertise. The exp- the, the the differentiation should be around expertise not and again i'll use the term outside of higher ed but not channel of distribution Hmm. because eventually everybody will have all the channels of distribution that everybody else does they'll just use them either more or less so i think differentiation is around like the expertise that an institution has to offer um and that's really what i think schools need to focus on
0: and so do you think from like a messaging standpoint the you know Moving into sort of like this next decade, let's even just say the next few years here, there's sort of going to be this pressure to be very clear with your messaging to ensure that, you know, your website is speaking to maybe a little bit more of a targeted audience than you have historically felt comfortable with. like if you're going to lead so strongly i mean we're working i'm helping out a couple of schools right now kind of rethink their their website copy and there's just this friction that exists of saying hey this is what you say that you are this is how we are suggesting you you position yourself these are the actual words that we think effectively communicate your unique value offering and then there's agreement and then there's like oh but can we also add and for People that want to do, you know, X, Y, and Z, and it's it's sort of like you lose sort of the the um, uh, the compelling nature of the message when you can't be as explicit about who this is for, why this is unique, etc. Because you have to marry everything with all of these ands and buts. We also do X, Y, and Z for people A, B, and C, right? Like, so I guess what I'm what I'm trying to get at here is do you think there's just going to be way more pressure to be more explicit about this is who this particular program is the best fit for and here's why, or am I thinking too, too granular about this?
1: No, I, I agree with you in general. I think, well, the pressure is going to come from the marketplace because if we go back to that very first thing you asked me, there's just going to be fewer, you know, fewer customers, if you will. Um, and so i think um every school will need will be under pressure to articulate their story very clearly and you know there there can still be schools whose story is we're a small private elite liberal arts college in a beautiful town with a beautiful campus. Who educates the whole student, and you know all the things we've heard for years. I'm not saying that's bad. Yeah. I'm just saying there. Can't, I'm just saying every liberal arts college can't be that way because then you're like, okay, wh- why would I choose one over the other? So there can be some of those, but there will be way fewer than they're used to. And now there needs to be, you know, the peers to those that say, oh no, we're not that general liberal arts college. We embrace the liberal arts in this way and apply it to this. And so we're really good for this kind of student seeking to, you know, do a career. Like, I don't know if they lean on it as much, but I the last time I took a look at Elon down in North Carolina, you know, they were very much um, talking a lot about like liberal arts that sort of moves you and points you into the media and entertainment and related industries. Now, not exclusively, but it's like, hey, this is something we're really good at and we're going to raise our hand and say, we're really good at this. And and so it's sort of where the liberal arts meets like kind of the media industry. That doesn't mean they don't have other things, but it means like, you know, this is what we're best at. And I think that's what has to happen. Then, then you go to the program level and it makes sense to say, Oh, and by the way, Elon has these, you know, these particular programs that support that um, and so, yeah, it's focus, 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 focus. I mean, it, it's just it's it's the way that you break through is having uh, not only a, a cool story that people are like, you know, that's fun and interesting, but a relevant story, one mm-hmm. that really makes sense in terms of what prospective a prospective student might be looking for.
0: That's a fantastic example. I'm going to have to go and and look at that later. Um, my last question for you is around personalization. So for the past several years in in particular, I feel like there's been this huge uptick in like, you've got to personalize, uh, communications need to be uh, hyper-personalized. You need to revisit your post-inquiry and post-app conflows and make sure they're personalized, right? Like every, there's probably been like hundreds of of, um, uh, sessions at different conferences, workshops, right? That have talked about the need to better personalize communications in higher ed. And one of the things that, I've been thinking a little bit about lately is what are some some of the like unintended consequences of like ultra personalization when it comes to how a school markets and positions itself, and what I mean is, is there any sort of like risk or or downside to thinking about right personalizing the uh the enrollment experience down to the individual prospect um is there a possibility that that prospect then loses sort of like sight of the community, right? Component of, which is a key component of the product that higher education sells. So like in an attempt to give Zach everything that Zach wants, be very clear about why college X is the right fit for Zach. Is there any possibility that Zach loses sight of The fact that what initially attracted him to this college or university was this diverse community, this uh, community of learners that weren't just about the things that Zach, at least 17-year-old Zach, cared about or, or thought he cared about. So I guess... I don't know, are, are there, how do, how do colleges and universities sort of ride this line of delivering a great personalized, you know, buyer's journey while simultaneously not losing sight of the fact that the very thing that Zach's attracted to is the fact that there are things and offerings and people not like him. Does that make sense?
1: No, totally. Um, so I think, I think, uh, so I'm, I'm a believer in personalization to a point. Um when you force it, um you violate the principle that I'm that I'm more behind, which is meet the customer where they are, meet the student where they are, allow them to be in control of how they want to personalize it. Right. So to me, that's more like customization. Hmm. Um, and again, I'll go outside of higher ed. If I get on a website and I'm looking for something. And I'm just in the mode of like, I'm I'm learning. I just want to know what's going on here. And I keep getting the little digital agent popping up saying, you know, can we help you? Click no. Five minutes later, you've been searching for five minutes. Can we help you? It's like, okay, you're not listening to me now and I'm yeah. getting upset. It's those kind of things, just, you know, a non-higher ed example per se. But, you know, do it in ways that allow the student, the family member, the adult learner, whoever it is, to... You know, call the shots if they want to if they want to build a, a favorites file and you can help them do that, whether it's of majors or characteristics of a school or a program. Great. If they don't, if they're just dropping in and, and shadow shopping you, as some people call that, um let them. I mean, again, it goes back to sort of the fundamental marketing principle of, you know, let the students, um, you know, customize it the way that they want it to be for them it's it's the same principle we talked about a few minutes ago some students want to go to a school and be known and some want to go and get lost so you know allow that to to be you know what they want and 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 leave them let them be in charge if you will
0: i love that distinction between customization and personalization that makes that makes a ton of sense um well, hey, Bill, this has been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot, as I always do when I read or, or hear, uh, read something that you wrote or, or hear something uh, that, you've, that you've said. So thank you for taking some time to sit down with me and sit down with us. Um, if folks just want to learn a little bit more about uh, your latest musings uh, or, or the work of Ology, what's the best way for them to, to get in touch with you?
1: Um, well, I mean, obviously, if they want to know about ology, just, you know, jump on the website, ology.com, and um, anybody can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, I, I'm, I'm an intermittent publisher there. I, I uh, you know, when I get busy, I get away from it. And then when I have a little bit of time and some thoughts rattling around in my head, I post things there. But I'm always willing to get a message from somebody or, or you know, take a connection uh, there as well.
0: Well great, thank you very much time, uh, very much time. Very much, sir, for your time. Um, I clearly need some more coffee, but um, as always, it's been a pleasure and look forward to staying in touch.: Same here, thanks a lot and have a great day. If you are an enrollment marketer, working in marketing and communications or enrollment management, and would be willing to be interviewed on the podcast, or if you have an idea for a topic that you'd like to hear covered on the podcast please reach out directly to me at zach, Z-A-C-H, at enrollify.org. We sincerely look forward to working with you to make Enrollify the most trusted, go-to digital resource for enrollment marketers out there.